Good morning. I want to spend a little bit of time this morning talking about spiritual practices, how it comes up in the book of uh, Paul's letter to the Romans. Now, a lot of spiritual practices, uh, there's a lot of them out there, and a lot of them in Christianity we don't do as much nowadays, nothing like what we used to do. Things like fasting, or uh, a lot of the Christian holidays. You know, we don't have a country right now where a lot of our holidays are explicitly Christian. Not anymore. And we definitely don't have anything like what we used to. You know, we don't celebrate, uh, we, don't get a na we don't get a national day off for the Feast of Corpus Christi. 500 years ago, that would have been a huge deal. All the shops would have been closed. There would have been streets would have been packed. It would have been a week-long party for the Feast of Corpus Christi. And you would have, everyone would have been there to see the body of Christ from communion, the communion wafers, the communion host in a beautiful box, being walked down the street. Not anymore. Some of those things we don't understand as much, like fasting. Uh, usually when I hear someone talk about fasting these days, it's usually in the context of giving something up you know, uh, like a diet, an alternative diet. You know, I'm fasting for X amount of time from, and then you would insert whatever food product it is that you've decided you're not gonna have. I'm, I'm gonna fast from, you know, chocolate, alcohol, something like that, to cleanse my system. And so what you're really saying is you're gonna give up something that probably wasn't all that important to you to begin with or maybe wasn't all that good for you, and you know you probably shouldn't have done it, so I'm gonna step back for a while. Uh, or, you know, how else do I hear it? I hear people say things like, I'm gonna fast from Facebook for a month because there's just too many of these political memes. I mean, I get that one, I understand that. Uh, but in the early church, in the early church, there's a lot of talk about fasting. You run into it in the Bible a lot. And it was the kind of thing that people might do for a week here, a week there. There might be several weeks out of the year where people are fasting. And so, of course, when you fast, uh, you're giving something up. But while you're giving that thing up, you usually think about it a lot because you don't have it. So when you're not eating, you think about food a lot. And you think about your hunger a lot. And the other thing that can happen to you when you're fasting and giving something up is that you can start to get real jealous of the people who aren't giving it up, and you can get real judgy with those people. You know, you can sit there, you know, say, say I'm, I'm fasting from food, and I look at that person, and you know, and you're like, man, look at that person over there just pegging out on that stuffed crust pizza loaded with all that gluten and fat. They have no self-control. They don't have as much self-control as I do. They're clearly not as spiritual as I am. And inside, there's a part of you that's saying, oh man, that hot dog, stuffed crust, deep pizza, oh, that sounds so good right now. You know, Anytime you give something up, you have to be aware of the danger of becoming judgmental of those who don't. The, the fast is supposed to teach you humility, patience, focus in your life. 
It's supposed to help you appreciate what you have and be more focused on God for a while. Uh, but the result can be that you start thinking you're better than those people who don't do the fast. You, it's, a pro, it's a chronic problem with any sort of moral code that requires you to not participate in something that you see other people participating in. You know, and, and if you aren't aware of the danger, it can make you a really horrible person to be around. And it can lead you to desiring what you gave up that much more so that you slip up after you've just been all public about judging everybody else for it. You know, you don't want to end up being a Jerry Falwell Jr. who runs around the country complaining about America's moral demise. Well, he's not judging now much, is he? You know, this is the kind of thing that happened to early Christians with their spiritual practices. The Apostle Paul writes about it in his letter to the Church of Rome. He says, Romans 14, 2 through 3. Some believe in eating anything, while the weak eat only vegetables. Those who eat must not despise those who abstain, and those who abstain must not pass judgment on those who eat, for God has welcomed them. Now I know your first response is, Paul thinks vegetarians are weak. But the people abstaining here are not doing it for the kind of reasons we do today. They're doing it for very different reasons. They're doing it because they're worried that the meat they eat might have been butchered by a Greek or Roman butcher who would almost invariably have taken that meat and held it up and done some sort of religious ceremony to dedicate that meat to the Roman God. I, you know, I dedicate this pork loin to Zeus. I dedicate this, you know, side of beef to Hera and this leg of lamb to uh, Ares or something. And because almost all the meat you would get in Roman markets was somehow sacrificed to one of these Roman gods, and the Romans tended to believe that if you ate the meat sacrificed to the god, it was kind of like you were participating in the body of that god. So it had a little bit kind of a sacramentally, communion-y kind of feel. And so for a lot of these new Christians who came from Roman religions, they felt like, look, I am not going to honor Zeus and Apollo and Hera and Ares, and I'm not going to honor these gods. I'm not going to participate in that ritual. But the only way I can be safe and know for sure that I'm not doing it is to just not eat meat. So if I don't eat meat, I won't eat the wrong meat. That's what they're fasting about. That's why they're only eating vegetables. And in a sense, it makes a lot of sense if you're being concerned about that. Now, Paul will come in and he will say, and he says this in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 8 as well, that look, he'll come into the people and say, look, I know that meat 
There's nothing magical or supernatural or powerful about that meat. You know, there's no special Zeus essence in that meat. And if you eat it or you don't eat it, it doesn't do anything. It doesn't make any difference because an idol doesn't exist. And they can sacrifice the meat to all the idols in the world and it won't make any difference. But some people still don't want to touch it. And so Paul says to his churches, look, let it be. They don't have to eat meat. Yes, it may be that their faith is at a point where they still ascribe power to it that isn't there. But you who aren't worried about it need to get off your high horses and stop thinking that you are somehow more enlightened or more superior than those people. Because obviously I know that I can eat all the meat I want. I'm not like those people. You know, the whole point is that we're trying to live our lives in a godly way. And we're all trying to navigate doing that in a world that isn't Christian. And we have to make choices, and sometimes those choices are not easy. So let's not make things harder or become judges for one another. All right, so then Paul comes, and he puts in this interesting part as he's writing this letter. And it doesn't, at first, seem like it belongs. Romans 14, starting at verse 7. We do not live to ourselves, and we do not die to ourselves. If we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, so that he might be Lord of both the living and the dead. I love this part. You know, you could spend hours hours in devotions, just working this through with yourself, trying to figure out what this means. You know, I read this and I wonder, why is Paul talking about this in the middle of a chapter about food, set, you know, food practices? And it's because Paul is trying to say that there are some things in life that matter more than others, and there are priorities, and that at the end of the day, at the end of the day, when Jesus returns, the question will not be about whether you fasted or didn't, whether you ate meat or didn't. It will not be about what things you manage to give up in and of themselves. What is going to matter is what did you do for your neighbor and did you live for Christ and did you know Christ and did you love your neighbor? And when you do that, a lot of these other things don't seem so important. They're not unimportant. Paul doesn't say that. Paul doesn't say that we shouldn't have any liturgy or any rituals or, or that we shouldn't, you know, have things that we don't participate in. He doesn't, he's not a, he's by any means an anything goes kind of person, but he doesn't say, you know, but he is saying that there's a point to it all. And that the point behind all of it, that we all have to understand, is that what it, we're doing is we're doing it to bring us closer to Jesus. 
to live like Jesus, to follow in the way of Jesus. It's a different way of looking at faith than all the Roman gods around them. You know, the Roman gods, that all the members of his church were surrounded by, the Roman gods, they were totally transactional. That was how Roman religion worked. You give the god honor, he gives you good luck. You give the god a sacrifice, he might give you wealth. Maybe victory in battle, maybe, you know, a new deal for your business. It went on and on. It was all tit for tat. The Roman gods were like, you know, mob bosses trading favors. You did something for Zeus, Zeus will do something for you. But our God is different. There's no transaction. There's no scorecard of religious accomplishments. And there's no point system where if you, you get enough of them, you get in. When I look at this verse, where Paul talks about we do not live to ourselves and we do not die to ourselves, but he says we are the Lord's. When I look at that verse and he says we are the Lord's, I think about what that means. To be the Lord's. To be with someone in such a way, to be with your Creator in such a way that it makes the rest of all your priorities in life feel irrelevant. I imagine that it's a lot like what it's like being in love, you know, where you suddenly become willing to make all sorts of sacrifices for this person. Because the rest, all, all those other things, they just don't seem as important. You know, I've seen people give up jobs, security, safety. I've seen people give up positions among their friends. I've seen people give up social standings just to be with the one they love. Being with God is like that. That's what Paul is saying. That whether we eat or don't eat, we're with God, and so that stuff doesn't matter in that same way. Instead of seeing our spiritual life as about getting and earning, we should look at it more like being in love, being in union with your Creator. All right, I'm going to go even a little deeper here, so follow me. People often ask, what can I do to experience God? How can I experience the divine, the sacred, the holy, the mysterious? And the question kind of takes me back a little bit. Because my first thought is I want to ask, well, why do you want to experience God? I mean, is it because you want to know what God's plan is for your life? So in the midst of this experience, you would get a message, some direction? Is it because you, you, you feel this powerful calling, like one of the prophets, and you want God to tell you what you can do to bring about change in the world? Because that's how it always worked with the prophets. They would, they would have this incredible, powerful experience of God, these vi mind-blowing visions, and then right after the vision would come God saying, all right, 
Ezekiel, Isaiah, Amos, I got work for you to do. I need you to tell these people this, and I need you to tell the king that, and I need you to tell the priests that, and it's all going to be stuff they're not going to want to hear, and so you're probably going to die. But I need somebody to do it. Is that why you want to have an experience of God? No one's ever come to me asking that. Or is it more basic? You just want to know the truth about your own, uh, about your own life. Do you just want to, you know, on a, in another way, um, are you coming to experience God because you want something cool? You know, like you're chasing experiences, the way we chase the thrill of skydiving or, or, or that marvelous view when we stand on the arch at Bridges National Park, you know? Are, are, are you chasing the rush of whitewater rapids? And so you're just going to add, you know, some mystical experience on top of it. You know, one guy goes, yeah, dude, you should have seen what I saw in that canyon. And the other one's going, man, you should have seen the vision I had of God's throne room. It was awesome, dude. Or are you hoping that getting in touch with God will help you with the problems you're dealing with? I'd say this is maybe a better reason. You know, you're struggling with the illness. We've been here. We've all been there, right? You go through, you have an illness. There's a tragedy. There's a loss. And you want to know why this is happening. You want to know that God is doing something about it. Why did God let this happen? Where is God's place in this? And you really want to know that God's listening and that at least he's there and not just out playing golf while you're suffering and your kid's in the hospital. If it's not thrill-seeking or experience-seeking or trying to get some sort of spiritual high, you know, like God, some giant dispensary in the sky, then I believe that God is absolutely open to being with his people in a tangible, experiential way. But it's hard to do when you have certain obstacles in your way. If you are so busy that you never stop to smell the flowers, to look around, to open yourself up, to calm down and evaluate, if you are so driven by your own goals that the only prayer is, you know, God, help meet my plan. I'm sure God has to sit there and listen all the time to somebody going, God, help me meet my quarterly targets of monetizing my internet assets according to the manual on synergy handed down by corporate. Lord, please, amen. Yeah, that might make it a little hard to see God. <laughs> if your mind is so preoccupied with concerns and to-dos and tasks and day-to-day -day pressures, it can be hard. Because what you're trying to do in prayer, in fasting, in chanting, in whatever your spiritual practice is, what you're trying to do is create a space in your life for God. You're trying to build a connection and a relationship, and to do that, you have to spend some time and some energy on the one you want the connection with. 
And when we do that in our spiritual life, what we're doing is we're building that connection and that relationship with the God who already knows us and loves us, but maybe we don't believe it yet. And you're desiring that that connection, that connection that will make these concerns of the world even more meaningless than when you're in love and the flowers all look like they're blooming and you don't care if you make it into work on time because, you know, I'm in love and I could care less about the manual and synergy. You're looking to live for God and know God in a way that even if you die, it doesn't matter because you already have a love and a fullness that gives it all a purpose. You want that. But you have to clear space to be open to it. You can't make the Holy Spirit do anything. I've said that many times. We cannot make God do anything. We cannot make the Spirit come to us. There is no prayer that can force God to do anything. But what can we do? We can clear out space for God in our lives. You clear out time to sit in silence or to read. You clear out time by fasting. You clear out time by shutting off your phone. You clear out time to sit around and waste time, which, yeah, it's not the easiest thing in our world to do. And you sit there and you open yourself up to God and you breathe instead of just running endlessly on this treadmill. And you stop and you just breathe in and you listen to what Jesus says in the Gospels. And you really look at this and say, is this, is this what I want to be doing? Or you sit and you go, God, let's talk. And yeah, that takes practice. And it takes regular practice. And throughout the history of Christianity, often the people who've had the most powerful experiences have been people who've devoted the most time to practicing to it. They don't all get the experience, but they make the space in whatever ritual they do. They take time off. They spend time in reading. Spend time in reading scripture. They spend time in reading devotions. Maybe they fast and they spend time uh, in solidarity with the, the hungry of the world. Or maybe you like doing rosaries or chants or get a study guide from the ELCA website. I could go on all day. The point of it all is to create a space in our lives to let God in. That's what you're doing. You're trying to be faithful to God's commands and make God a part of your life like that new love. It's why you fast when you fast and you sing when you sing. It's not to earn points, but to make yourself open. And when you start to clear that space and get that vision and feel God working, you realize that your life now has a whole different view and a different purpose. I don't live for me anymore. Before, I was just living for me. I was asking what's in it for me. I was doing what's in it for me. But now, now I got God. And it's not all about me. I have a purpose. 
There is a cause. But it all comes from a place, a relationship, a connection. The plans come later. And I know that if I live or die, if I'm persecuted by the Romans, or if I get rich and die comfortably, it doesn't matter. Because I have Jesus. It's like that old song says, you can have all the world. Give me Jesus. Amen.